Section 10 of The Coming Race. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. The Coming Race by Edward George Bulwer Lytton. Chapter 16. I have spoken so much of the real staff that my reader may expect me to describe it. This I cannot do accurately, for I was never allowed to handle it for fear of some terrible accident occasioned by my ignorance of its use. And I have no doubt that it requires much skill and practice in the exercise of its various powers. It is hollow, and has in the handle several stops, keys, or springs by which its force can be altered, modified, or directed so that by one process it destroys, by another it heals, by one it can rend the rock, by another disperse the vapor, by one it affects bodies, by another it can exercise a certain influence over minds. It is usually carried in the convenient size of a walking staff, but it has slides by which it can be lengthened or shortened, at will. When used for special purposes, the upper part rests in the hollow of the palm with the fore and middle fingers protruded. I was assured, however, that its power was not equal in all, but proportioned to the amount of certain vril properties in the wearer, in affinity or rapport with the purposes to be effected. Some were more potent to destroy, others to heal, etc., much also depended on the calm and steadiness of volition in the manipulator. They assert that the full exercise of real power can only be acquired by the constitutional temperament, i.e. by hereditarily transmitted organization, and that a female infant of four years old, belonging to the Vrilia races, can accomplish feats which a life spent in its practice would not enable the strongest and most skilled mechanician born out of the pale of the vrilia to achieve all these wands are not equally complicated those entrusted to children are much simpler than those borne by sages of either sex and constructed with a view to the special object on which the children are employed which, as I have before said, is, among the youngest children, the most destructive. In the wands of wives and mothers, the correlative destroying force is usually abstracted, the healing power fully charged. I wish I could say more in detail of this singular conductor of the vril fluid, but its machinery is as exquisite as its effects are marvellous. I should say, however, that this people have invented certain tubes by which the vril fluid can be conducted towards the object it is meant to destroy, throughout a distance almost indefinite. At least, I put it modestly when I say from five hundred to a thousand miles. And their mathematical science, as applied to such purpose, is so nicely accurate that on the report of some observer in an airboat, any member of the Vril department can estimate unerringly 
the nature of intervening obstacles, the height to which the projectile instrument should be raised, and the extent to which it should be charged, so as to reduce to ashes, within a space of time too short for me to venture to specify it, a capital twice as vast as London. Certainly these Anna are wonderful mathematicians, wonderful for the adaptation of the inventive faculty to practical uses. I went with my host and his daughter Z over the great public museum, which occupies a wing in the College of Sages, and in which are hoarded as curious specimens of the ignorant and blundering experiments of ancient times, many contrivances on which we pride ourselves as recent achievements. In one department, carelessly thrown aside as obsolete lumber, are tubes for destroying life by metallic balls and an inflammable powder on the principle of our cannons and catapults, and even still more murderous than our latest improvements. My host spoke of these with a smile of contempt, such as an artillery officer might bestow on the bows and arrows of the Chinese. In another department there were models of vehicles and vessels worked by steam, and of an air balloon which might have been constructed by Montgolfier. Such, said Z, with an air of meditative wisdom, such were the feeble triflings with nature of our savage forefathers, ere they had even a glimmering perception of the properties of Rill. This young Guy was a magnificent specimen of the muscular force to which the females of her country attain. Her features were beautiful, like those of all her race. Never in the upper world have I seen a face so grand and so faultless, but her devotion to the severer studies had given to her countenance an expression of abstract thought which rendered it somewhat stern when in repose, and such a sternness became formidable when observed in connection with her ample shoulders and lofty stature. She was tall even for a gi, and I saw her lift up a cannon as easily as I could lift a pocket-pistol. Z inspired me with a profound terror, a terror which increased when we came into a department of the museum appropriated to models of contrivances worked by the agency of Vril. For here, merely by a certain play of her Vril staff, she herself standing at a distance, she put into movement large and weighty substances. She seemed to endow them with intelligence, and to make them comprehend and obey her command. She set complicated pieces of machinery into movement, arrested the movement, or continued it, until, within an incredibly short time, various kinds of raw material were reproduced as symmetrical works of art, complete and perfect. Whatever effect mesmerism or electrobiology produces over the nerves and muscles of animated objects, this young gi produced by the motions of her slender rod over the springs and wheels of lifeless mechanism. 
when i mentioned to my companions my astonishment at this influence over inanimate matter while owning that in our world i had witnessed phenomena which showed that over certain living organizations certain other living organizations could establish an influence genuine in itself but often exaggerated by credulity or craft z who was more interested in such subjects than her father bade me stretch forth my hand and then placing it beside her own she called my attention to certain distinctions of type and character in the first place the thumb of the gi and as i afterwards noticed of all that race male or female was much larger at once longer and more massive than is found with our species above ground there is almost in this as great a difference as there is between the thumb of a man and that of a gorilla secondly the palm is proportionally thicker than ours the texture of the skin infinitely finer and softer its average warmth is greater more remarkable than all this is a visible nerve perceptible under the skin which starts from the wrist skirting the ball of the thumb and branching fork-like at the roots of the fore and middle fingers with your slight formation of thumb said the philosophical young gi and with the absence of the nerve which you find more or less developed in the hands of our race you can never achieve other than imperfect and feeble power over the agency of vril but so far as the nerve is concerned that is not found in the hands of our earliest progenitors nor in those of the ruder tribes without the pale of the vrilya it has been slowly developed in the course of generations commencing in the early achievements and increasing with the continuous exercise of the vril power therefore in the course of one or two thousand years such a nerve may possibly be engendered in those higher beings of your race who devote themselves to that paramount science through which is attained command over all the subtler forces of nature permeated by vril but when you talk of matter as something in itself inert and motionless your parents or tutor surely cannot have left you so ignorant as not to know that no form of matter is motionless and inert every particle is constantly in motion and constantly acted upon by agencies of which heat is the most apparent and rapid but vril the most subtle and when skilfully wielded the most powerful so that in fact the current launched by my hand and guided by my will does but render quicker and more potent the action which is eternally at work upon every particle of matter however inert and stubborn it may seem if a heap of metal be not capable of originating a thought of its own yet through its internal susceptibility to movement it obtains the power to receive the thought of the intellectual agent at work on it by which when conveyed with a sufficient force of the vril power it is as much compelled to obey 
as if it were displaced by a visible bodily force. It is animated for the time being by the soul thus infused into it, so that one may almost say that it lives and reasons. Without this we could not make our automata supply the place of servants. I was too much in awe of the thews and the learning of the young gi to hazard the risk of arguing with her. I had read somewhere in my schoolboy days that a wise man, disputing with the Roman emperor, suddenly drew in his horns, and when the emperor asked him whether he had nothing further to say on his side of the question, replied, Nay, Caesar, there is no arguing against a reasoner who commands ten legions. Though I had a secret persuasion, that whatever the real effects of Rill upon matter, Mr. Faraday could have proved her a very shallow philosopher as to its extent or its causes, I had no doubt that Z could have brained all the fellows of the Royal Society, one after the other, with a blow of her fist. Every sensible man knows that it is useless to argue with any ordinary female upon matters he comprehends but to argue with a gi seven feet high upon the mysteries of Rill, as well argue in a desert and with a simoon. Amid the various departments to which the vast building of the College of Sages was appropriated, that which interested me most was devoted to the archaeology of the Vrilya, and comprised a very ancient collection of portraits. In these the pigments and groundwork employed were of so durable a nature that even pictures said to be executed at dates as remote as those in the earliest annals of the Chinese retained much freshness of color. In examining this collection, two things especially struck me. First, that the pictures said to be between 6,000 and 7,000 years old were of a much higher degree of art than any produced within the last three thousand to four thousand years. And second, that the portraits within the former period much more resembled our own upper world and European types of countenance. Some of them, indeed, reminded me of the Italian heads which look out from the camases of Titian, speaking of ambition of craft, of care or of grief, with furrows in which the passions have passed with iron ploughshare. These were the countenances of men who had lived in struggle and conflict before the discovery of the latent forces of Rill had changed the character of society, men who had fought with each other for power or fame as we in the upper world fight. The type of face began to evince a market change about a thousand years after the Vril Revolution, becoming then, with each generation, more serene, and in that serenity more terribly distinct from the faces of laboring and sinful men. While in proportion, as the beauty and the grandeur of the countenance itself became more fully developed, the art of the painter became more tame and monotonous. 
but the greatest curiosity in the collection was that of three portraits belonging to the prehistorical age and according to mythical tradition taken by the orders of a philosopher whose origin and attributes were as much mixed up with symbolical fable as those of an indian buddha or a greek prometheus from this mysterious personage at once a sage and a hero all the principal sections of the vrilya race pretend to trace a common origin the portraits are of the philosopher himself of his grandfather and great-grandfather they are all at full length the philosopher is attired in a long tunic which seems to form a loose suit of scaly armor borrowed perhaps from some fish or reptile but the feet and hands are exposed the digits in both are wonderfully long and webbed he has little or no perceptible throat and a low receding forehead not at all the ideal of a sage's he has bright brown prominent eyes a very wide mouth and high cheekbones and a muddy complexion according to tradition this philosopher had lived to a patriarchal age extending over many centuries and he remembered distinctly in middle life his grandfather as surviving and in childhood his great-grandfather the portrait of the first he had taken or caused to be taken while yet alive that of the latter was taken from his effigies in mummy the portrait of his grandfather had the features and aspect of the philosopher only much more exaggerated he was not dressed and the color of his body was singular the breast and stomach yellow the shoulders and legs of a dull bronze hue the great-grandfather was a magnificent specimen of the batrachian genus a giant frog pour example among the pithy sayings which according to tradition the philosopher bequeathed to posterity in rhythmical form and sententious brevity this is notably recorded Quote, humble yourselves my descendants the father of your race was a twat tadpole exalt yourselves my descendants for it was the same divine thought which created your father that develops itself in exalting you apalin told me this fable while i gazed on the three batrachian portraits i said in reply you make a jest of my supposed ignorance and credulity as an uneducated tish but though these horrible daubs may be of great antiquity and were intended perhaps for some rude caricature i presume that none of your race even in the less enlightened ages ever believed that the great-grandson of a frog became a sententious philosopher or that any section i will not say of the lofty vrilya but of the meanest varieties of the human race had its origin in a tadpole pardon me answered apalin in what we call the wrangling or philosophical period of history which was at its height about seven thousand years ago there was a very distinguished naturalist 
who proved to the satisfaction of numerous disciples such analogical and anatomical agreements in structure between an on and a frog as to show that out of the one must have developed the other they had some diseases in common they were both subject to the same parasitical worms in the intestines and strange to say the on has in his structure a swimming bladder no longer of any use to him but which is a rudiment that clearly proves his descent from a frog nor is there any argument against this theory to be found in the relative difference of size for there are still existent in our world frogs of a size and stature not inferior to our own and many thousand years ago they appear to have been still larger i understand that said i because frogs this enormous are according to our eminent geologists who perhaps saw them in dreams said to have been distinguished inhabitants of the upper world before the deluge and such frogs are exactly the creatures likely to have flourished in the lakes and morasses of your subterranean regions but pray proceed in the wrangling period of history whatever one sage asserted another sage was sure to contradict in fact it was a maxim in that age that the human reason could only be sustained aloft by being tossed to and fro in the perpetual motion of contradiction and therefore another sect of philosophers maintained the doctrine that an on was not the descendant of the frog but that the frog was clearly the improved development of the on the shape of the frog taken generally was much more symmetrical than that of the on beside the beautiful conformation of its lower limbs its flanks and shoulders the majority of the ana in that day were almost deformed and certainly ill-shaped again the frog had the power to live alike on land and in water a mighty privilege partaking of a spiritual essence denied to the on since the disuse of his swimming bladder clearly proves his degeneration from a higher development of species again the earlier races of the ana seem to have been covered with hair and even to a comparatively recent date hirsute bushes deformed the very faces of our ancestors spreading wild over their cheeks and chins as similar bushes my poor tish spread wild over yours but the object of the higher races of the ana through countless generations has been to erase all vestige of connection with hairy vertebrata and they have gradually eliminated that debasing capillary excrement by the law of sexual selection the jaye naturally preferring youth or the beauty of smooth faces but the degree of the frog in the scale of the vertebrata is shown in this that he has no hair at all not even on his head he was born to that hairless perfection which the most beautiful of the ana despite the culture of incalculable ages have not yet attained 
the wonderful complication and delicacy of a frog's nervous system and arterial circulation were shown by this school to be more susceptible of enjoyment than our inferior or at least simpler physical frame allows us to be the examination of a frog's hand if i may use that expression accounted for its keener susceptibility to love and to social life in general in fact gregarious and amatory as are the ana frogs are still more so in short these two schools raged against each other one asserting the an to be the perfected type of the frog the other that the frog was the highest development of the on the moralists were divided in opinion with the naturalists but the bulk of them sided with the frog preference school they said with much plausibility that in moral conduct namely in the adherence to rules best adapted to the health and welfare of the individual and the community there could be no doubt of the vast superiority of the frog all history showed the wholesale immorality of the human race the complete disregard even by the most renowned amongst them of the laws which they acknowledged to be essential to their own and the general happiness and well-being but the severest critic of the frog race could not detect in their manners a single aberration from the moral law tacitly recognized by themselves and what after all can be the profit of civilization if superiority in moral conduct be not the aim for which it strives and the test by which its progress should be judged in fine the adherents of this theory presumed that in some remote period the frog race had been the improved development of the human but that from some causes which defied rational conjecture they had not maintained their original position in the scale of nature while the ana though of inferior organization had by dint less of their virtues than their vices such as ferocity and cunning gradually acquired ascendancy much as among the human race itself tribes utterly barbarous have by superiority in similar vices utterly destroyed or reduced into insignificance tribes originally excelling them in mental gifts and culture unhappily these disputes became involved with the religious notions of that age and as society was then administered under the government of the Kum Posh, who being the most ignorant were of course the most inflammable class the multitude took the whole question out of the hands of the philosophers political chiefs saw that the frog dispute so taken up by the populace could become a most valuable instrument of their ambition and for not less than one thousand years war and massacre prevailed during which period the philosophers on both sides were butchered and the government of Kum Posh itself was happily brought to an end by the ascendancy of a family that clearly established its descent from the aboriginal tadpole and furnished despotic rulers to the various nations of the Ana. 
these despots finally disappeared at least from our communities as the discovery of vril led to the tranquil institutions under which flourish all the races of the vrilia and do no wranglers or philosophers now exist to revive the dispute or do they all recognize the origin of your race in the tadpole nay such disputes said z with a lofty smile belong to the pa buddha of the dark ages and now only serve for the amusement of infants when we know the elements out of which our bodies are composed elements in common to the humblest vegetable plants can it signify whether the all-wise combined those elements out of one form more than another in order to create that in which he has placed the capacity to receive the idea of himself and all the varied grandeurs of intellect to which that idea gives birth the on in reality commenced to exist as an on with the donation of that capacity and with that capacity the sense to acknowledge that however through the countless ages his race may improve in wisdom it can never combine the elements at its command into the form of a tadpole you speak well z said apalin and it is enough for us short-lived mortals to feel a reasonable assurance that whether the origin of the on was a tadpole or not he is no more likely to become a tadpole again than the institutions of the vrilia are likely to relapse into the heaving quagmire and certain strife rot of a kumpush. End of chapter 16